1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about tomatoes, and then we'll talk about why the word chiropractic is singular. In the world of great debates, there's one that has been long-enduring and still keeps language prescriptivists awake at night. Is it tomato or tomato? Now, this may not seem as pressing as whether nuclear fusion is possible, but to people in the linguistic trenches, it's pretty darn close. After all, how many linguistic pronunciation ambiguities have been so long-running and widely known that they actually have inspired a song? To get to the bottom of the great tomato pronunciation debate, we have to go back, way past the Gershwins putting the ditty into the world. According to linguist Jack Chambers, the fruit was brought over to Europe around 1500 by Spanish explorers who developed a taste for it in the New World. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the original name, tamatl, came from Nahuatl, a Udo-Aztecan language spoken in parts of Mexico and Central America. Once across the pond, the word was nativized as it began to be used by speakers of European languages, meaning adapted to fit the sound systems of the borrowing language. In Spanish, the name for these little beauties was tamate, based on the sound system of Spanish, which, like most Romance languages, used the long A vowel, pronounced ah, which was the closest vowel sound to the one heard in the original Nahuatl word. This pronunciation was then adopted by the British, who used a similar ah vowel, sort of like we hear in the British-sounding pronunciation of father. So this foreign loanword nativization process would seem to argue that tomato is the accurate loanword form, at least outside of the real McCoy, to-model. But it's not quite so clear-cut. American colonists, always a bit wayward, had also learned about and cultivated tomatoes, but pronounced the word with a different vowel sound, the diphthongal A vowel. According to sociophonetician Charles Boberg's work on foreign loanword nativization, this A pronunciation was actually a common pronunciation assigned to many foreign loanwords spelled with a similar vowel, like potato, that had been borrowed into English prior to 1500, before the great vowel shift changed things up so that new words with the A vowel took on either the a ah sound, as in fat or cat, or an a ah sound, as in father. The Great Vowel Shift was a series of changes that radically altered the pronunciation of the long vowels in English between the 15th and 17th centuries. Before the vowel shift, it turns out such long A borrowings were typically pronounced A. For example, compare how we pronounce our nativized borrowings of paste from the 14th century versus pasta from the 19th century. Chambers suggests people adopted the A pronunciation of tomato to match how the word potato was already pronounced in North America. Tomato replicated an existing pattern. And in fact, the Oxford English Dictionary cites sources that suggest this vowel was one that was also found in British English at the time, but that was gradually replaced by the post-Great vowel shift A pronunciation. So tomato became the North American version of how to say the word tomato, and it appears was at the time considered a legitimate pronunciation. Of course, as we arrive in the 18th and 19th centuries, the North American accent sounded pretty awful to most Brits, even when it preserved older sounds. Vulgar, in fact, was the way they often described it in turn particularly after the american revolution the emancipated colonists had little interest in sounding anything like their british counterparts so this early difference became something of a statement of americanness in the face of british linguistic snootiness but why do americans still hear a bit more tomato across the border in canada well during and right after the revolutionary war thousands of british loyalists fled north to canada These refugees were more inclined toward the tomato pronunciation because many were showing allegiance to the motherland and the mother dialect. The tomato pronunciation was further entrenched throughout the 19th century by the flood of Britons relocating to Canada for cheap land. But as Canada's ties with Britain weakened over the course of the 20th century, more young Canadian speakers adopted the tomato pronunciation, a linguistic nod to the growing influence of their friendly neighbors to the south. And what of New England, where you can still hear the ah pronunciation here and there, which also gives us Eastern New Englanders vase instead of vase? Well, with port cities that continued ties to London via both family and trade, there, too, we see more extensive contact with in-vogue 19th-century British pronunciations than in other parts of the United States. So it's not surprising that the more British tomato would have had more cachet in New England and would have been more likely to survive in pockets to this day. And so the holdouts in the great tomato-tomato debate we still find scattered around the United States today are either those few who were already tomato speakers before everyone shifted toward the North American pronunciation and who passed it down to their children, or simply those who feel that sounding British is the bomb— But no matter what your feelings are about which is correct, they still taste great on sandwiches, so I say call them what you will. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno, and the author of a forthcoming book on all the speech habits we love to hate. She's also a language expert for Psychology Today, where she writes a monthly blog, Language in the Wild. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com, or on Twitter as Fridland Valerie. Finally, I have a familect story and an answer to a question from the same caller. Hi, Min Young. Um,
0: long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm listening to an old show of yours from 2019 about um, family slang, the familect. And I just, I have a really good one that I want to share with you. Um, and I really appreciate the word familect. I'm going to use it a lot. Um, our word is fish. It means like jerk or in kind of like a, a childish way, because my dad was not allowed to curse because his mom was very religious when he was a young man. And so he he called people fish instead of jerk. And it kind of stuck around and we had a dog who was a real jerk and his name was fish. So. That's my Fanelect story, but the reason I was listening to your podcast actually is unrelated. I have been curious for a long time about the word chiropractic because it's a noun, right? Like mathematics or physics or therapeutics, um, but it's singular as a noun, and I think it is singular in that it is one of the few nouns that end in IC that is a singular noun. So I don't know. That's, that's my question. Why? Why is it not chiropractic? All right. I really appreciate you and everything you do. I love this podcast, and I hope you know the answer. I'm a young, so goody.
1: <laughs> Thank you for your story, and thank you for the interesting question. I couldn't find an exact answer, but I did find some interesting tidbits. It had never occurred to me that chiropractic is a singular noun, but you're right. The abbreviation DC, you see after a chiropractor's name, stands for doctor of chiropractic, not chiropractics or chiropractic medicine, just chiropractic. According to Edam Online, the noun chiropractic was coined by Americans in 1899. It's a combination of two Greek roots, chiro, which means hand, and praktikos, which means practical. Chiropractors use their hands to manipulate your body so the name makes sense and it is odd that it's singular. Aside from the fact that the second root, practicos ends with an S, many other disciplines end with ICS—physics, pediatrics, mathematics, linguistics, economics, ethics, and so on. There are many nouns that end in just IC, too, though. The Oxford English Dictionary highlights a few disciplines such as music, arithmetic, and rhetoric. Usually, these words we borrow from Greek started out as adjectives— And you'll recognize the IC suffix in adjectives like diabolic, sophomoric, and platonic. The most interesting point is that when these words moved from Greek to Latin, sometimes they were treated as singular, and sometimes they were treated as plural. The OED says, quote, There was in medieval Latin considerable fluctuation in the grammatical treatment of these words, unquote. In Italian, Spanish, and German, they were regularly treated as feminine singular. The same is true of French, but again, according to the OED, quote, in French from the 16th century, they were sometimes treated as plural, as in les mathématiques, which has an S on the end. In English, there's a dividing line in the middle of the 16th century. Before then, these kinds of words were generally treated as singular and tended to be written like the French words, for example, mathématique, mécanique, and économique. But in the middle of the 16th century, some, including the names of sciences, tended to be treated as plural, giving us mathematics, mechanics, and economics. Yet even though they now end in S, we treat the names of disciplines like this as singular. Economics is sometimes called the dismal science. Mathematics is sometimes called the language of science. They're singular. So that's interesting and all well and good, but it doesn't answer your question since chiropractic is a science and was named well after the mid-16th century. All I can tell you is it's just a weird outlier, and that's the best answer I could find. I'm sorry I couldn't find a better answer, but thanks for the question. I think it did lead to some interesting discoveries about the IC suffix and how singulars and plurals changed over time and between languages. Thanks again for the family story in question. If you want to call with the story of your act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at eight three three two one four girl, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, QuickAndDirtyTips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager is Michelle Margulis, and our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening. Walmart Plus
0: members save on Meeting Up With Friends.